you would take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. We've been looking at the gifts uh, and trying to find an answer to the question of what gifts remain today. And so an important passage to consider in this is Acts chapter 2. Uh, we've looked at the gifts in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and, and looked at what we would say are the apostolic gifts. And uh, this evening, we're going to actually go back and, and look at um, the history of what we might call the charismatic movement. Um, but I do want to start off with this portion of Scripture, because we will deal with it. Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said they were filled with new wine. This here is, the, as we mentioned last week, the only place in Scripture where the gift of tongues is actually described, and it's described as a known language. And we have said repeatedly that the modern manifestation of tongues where it's an unknown language that's oftentimes we see practiced in the church today is, is foreign to church history. I used to make the argument that one of the reasons I was of a, of a cessationist view was because you just didn't see these charismatic gifts in church history. But that's actually not true. And so this evening, what I would like to do is I would like to look and trace just briefly some of the major movements in church history and really zero in on uh, the 19, early 1900s. But before we get there, we'll just take a brief survey. The, one of the early people that would have claimed to have had extraordinary apostolic gifts was shortly after the time of the Apostles. And it was by a man named Montanus. And Montanus, he had, was, was a, a, um, would have been a pastor of some sorts. He converted to Christianity in 155 AD. So you're going back almost to the time of the Apostles. 
So it's really relatively close. He was firmly convinced that he had received a special filling of the Holy Spirit that led him to begin prophesying. And he became consumed with prophesying of the end times and believed that the end times were imminent. And he, he quickly amassed a, a large following, even uh, the notable Tertullian. Has anyone heard of Tertullian before? He was one of the early church fathers. Very important in the history of Christianity. The Montanist embraced various extraordinary religious experiences, such as visions, revelatory dreams, speaking in tongues. Now, how they interpreted that, I don't know. And prophetic utterances of prediction, divine comfort, and rebuke. They retreated from society, and they, they began to embrace an ascetic lifestyle, and were, were known for their extreme piety. Now, Despite the following that Montanus had, the church in terms, and I say the church, the recognized churches of, those, of that time period universally deemed him as a heretic. Now the reason why they deemed him as a heretic wasn't because of the gifts that he was claiming. They, they deemed him a heretic because he said that his gift of prophecy and the community of prophecy was actually ushering a new, in a new age and would be the imminent return of Christ. And so they rejected him. The church completely rejected him, and they were skeptic towards that. Now, this is the first manifestation of it that we know of, is this man Montanus. And so it, it, it would be false to say that, that those that today that claim um, charismatic gifts, it would be false to say that they don't have a historical backing. They do. And the question is, is whether it is a correct history. Um, here's, here's one of the things that we have to look at. The church makes a decision, and I say the church you have a, several different churches come together and say, we count this as being false. Does that carry weight? I want you to think about that for a moment. We're going to skip up about a thousand years to a man named George Fox. Have you ever heard of George Fox? George Fox was the founder of the Quakers. You have heard of the Quakers. I'm going to read you the passage of Scripture, the Quakers and George Fox particularly would have hung their hat on. And it was John 1.9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. George Fox was, uh, would have been a professing Christian, as many were during his period of time. He was, was in England. He underwent a profound conversion experience when he was sitting with a group of Puritans that were drinking and kept drinking and kept drinking and kept drinking. And he went home and was convicted that that was the, the, this particular group's lifestyle. And so in a moment of despair, he claimed that the Lord spoke to him audibly. And this is what the Lord he, Fox says, said to him, Thou seest how young people go together in vanity and old people into the earth, and thou must forsake all, both young and old, and keep out of all, and be a stranger unto all. That's what he said that God spoke to him one night and led to his conversion, which actually that doctrine 
that God audibly spoke to him became the doctrine of the inner light. Now you see what, what, how he's interpreting John 1, 9 is this way, is everybody has this light and God can speak to everybody through this light. That's how he was interpreting that passage. He began to developed or his doctrine turned into the Quaker denomination or the Quaker group. And if you've ever, if you're familiar with the Quakers, what the Quakers will do is they'll get into a group like say this, and they'll sit there in silence until someone gets the inner light and starts speaking. So that would be a Quaker meeting, even still. And they're waiting for that to happen. They would sit there and wait for someone to get the word of God. So very subjective experience that they would face. Now the birth of the Quakers had a significant impact on England and on English society. In fact, we read this, the Quakers were beginning to make themselves known, vigorously promoting their doctrine of inner light and undermining the authority of the written word, their enthusiasm or what Owen termed fanaticism, that's John Owen, was causing a disturbance among common people and even making an impact among the student body at Oxford. They, it started off as hearing the voice of God and then they would interpret that to where they started acting out in fanatical ways. John Owen actually called them fanatics. Now, what's important to understand here is I want to draw Fox and Montanus together. Fox, much like Montanus, claimed special revelation directly from God and gathered an influential following. Like Montanus, Fox was universally condemned by the church at large as a heretic. There's something that's really noteworthy we have to know, and I, I'm drawing this for us to ask this question, to think about this. The Westminster Confession of Faith, the Savoy Declaration of Faith, and the Second London Confession of Faith all explicitly rejected the theology of an inner light. So you think about this. You have Presbyterians, you have the Congregationalist, and you have the Baptist all denying this interpretation of Fox. Three groups. The 39 Articles of the Church of England, the Anglican Church. You remember... The Church of England became a church, its own church, when King Henry wanted to get his divorce, so he separated and declared himself the head of the church in England. The 39 articles state this, Holy Scripture contains all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, is not required of any man. Now, think about what the, 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 that, the 39 Articles is saying. If it's not contained in Scripture, if it's not contained in Scripture, so even the Church of England that comes, and the, the authorship of, of the 39 Articles would have come before Quakerism. It would have come before Fox. I think it's just important to note that. The Second London Confession of Faith says this, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. And that's the same language as the Savoy and also the uh, Westminster. Now, John Owen was a particularly harsh critic of the Quakers. And he wrote an entire book uh, defending Scripture. And he wrote concerning the fallacy of inner light doctrine. 
based upon the perfection and sufficiency of Scripture, he asked this. It's a good question for us to wrestle with. What practical use for Scripture, if it is so complete as to need poor mortal men to be continually adding to it? Let me, let me read that again. It's a good question. What practical use for Scripture, if it is so incomplete as to need poor mortal men to be continually adding to it. In other words, he's, he's just simply asking, is this, is this word sufficient? Is the Bible sufficient to accomplish what, what, it, what we need for our faith? Is it sufficient to guide us and to direct us how to worship? Now here's what I, I, I bring up Montanus and Fox to ask this simple question. In both cases of Montanus and Fox, the broader church, now the broader church, Fox had followers, Montanus had followers, they all had followers, but the broader church condemned both the men and the movements they led. So the broader church community, those that were the scholars of the day, and even those that just were faithful to the word of God, would have condemned them. These historical events raise a significant question that we have to think about regarding authority. Is it within the purview of ecclesiastical bodies to condemn or reject movements? Think about this for a moment. If there was a movement today, and the broader evangelical world looked at the, upon that movement and said, this is false. Is there authority in that? I mean, this is different than if I came to you and I said, hey, this is false and needs to be deemed unworthy of our attention. But if the broader evangelical world does that, should that not garner our attention? Absolutely. So when we see that the church as a large body of churches are examining doctrine and saying, this doctrine is false, it needs to be rejected, or watch out for this person, that means we need to stop and think about that. You know, it's, it's also noteworthy. Fox's movement and Montanus's movement were both built on what? What were they built on? Were they built on the Bible? They were built on special revelation that they had received. They did not build their, their, their following upon God's word. They built it actually upon hearing something subjectively. Which brings us to about 1900s, the early 20th century. You remember I had mentioned that there were three waves of that charismatic movement. So we're looking at the first wave. And actually, this is the most important wave. And, and I want to spend the rest of the evening here on this because we're going to get into the doctrine of, of how the charismatic doctrine today is expressed and why it's expressed. And, and we need to know this. And we need to examine it. Because if, this, if their interpretation of this one single point is wrong, then their system falls apart. 
The roots of modern charismatic movement can be traced back to the early 20th century with the emergence of Pentecostalism. In 1901, a man by the name of Charles Parham, he was a Methodist minister, and a woman by the name of Agnes Osman, they claimed to experience speaking in tongues in Topeka, Kansas. This is often, this moment in 1901 is considered the birth of what we would consider the, the Pentecost, modern Pentecostal movement. So Parham was a Methodist holiness minister. Now think about the holiness. There was a movement, a holiness movement that was taking place in, in the Methodist circles. Wesleyan, what John Wesley was the founder of Methodism, held to this, this doctrine of perfectionism and holiness. Now, what was, what was that, that, that doctrine? It was just simply this, is that you initially come to Christ, you have a crisis moment in your life. After that crisis moment, you move to a new spiritual height, and you're able to then eventually work into perfectionism. That's the Wesleyan Methodist doctrine just very generally summed up. But it's the idea that after conversion, somewhere along the line, something else happens. And that's what we want to zero in on. That's, that's that Methodist doctrine. So, Wesley was, would, would not have been like what we would have considered necessarily a charismatic he would look at, I think, things like tongues and all of that stuff today and say, whoa, hold on. But we actually see his misunderstanding of the work of the Spirit in a person's life has dire consequences later on. And we oftentimes ask, does, does doctrine matter? <laughs> yeah. So Parham was a Methodist holiness minister. And he held to the Methodist doctrine of a spirit baptism separate from regeneration. So pause. What is regeneration? What is regeneration? To be what? Born again. Born again. Now, he says you're born again, and then, or, and then, then baptism, spirit baptism, is something separated from that. They're, they're, they're different. So Parham, who believed this, it led him to conclude that the gift of tongues was the sign of spirit baptism. Now, this, this should start to sound familiar to you if you are familiar at all with, 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 with Pentecostalism. Is that the sign of that you now are, are saved and beyond that is this idea of spirit baptism. It doesn't always come at the moment that you confess in faith. It sometimes comes later. And so the second work of grace is defined, let me define it to you according to a Wesleyan theologian named Orton Wiley. He says this, The baptism with the Spirit, therefore, must be considered under a twofold aspect. So I'm, I'm using a Methodist definition of this. This is what he says. Must be considered under a twofold aspect. First, as a death to the carnal nature, and second, as the fullness of life in the Spirit. Since entire sanctification is affected 
by the baptism with the Spirit, it likewise has a twofold aspect, the cleansing from sin and the full devotion to God. So it's this idea of separating our regeneration and the Spirit baptism. And so Pentecostal theology is built upon this idea of a second blessing that's separate. It's oftentimes connected to salvation. But they, they view it as something that comes later. And the, the importance of spirit baptism as a second blessing is, is really the sin qua non of, of all of Pentecostal theology. Apart from that, it could not exist. So what is spirit baptism? Scripturally speaking, one author says this. He says, it's Christ judicially placing Christians in the Holy Spirit when God regenerates them, thus placing them into the body of Christ. I believe that's the right definition. And what that means is that when someone is saved, when God regenerates them, they receive the baptism of the Spirit in the moment of regeneration, and they have received the Holy Spirit. Is that biblical? Well, 1 Corinthians 12, in verse 13, says this, For in one Spirit... We were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we're all made to drink of one spirit. For in one spirit we were all baptized. This is something that is accomplished one time. It's not a twofold aspect, but something that happens once. We see this as in Ephesians. In 4, verse 4, it says this, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. And then finally, Acts chapter 2. You see it, same statement. Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When does Peter say spirit baptism is going to take place? Upon you believing. In that moment that you believe, now we believe that you're regenerated, and then you profess faith. But what's the time frame between regeneration and faith? Well, they happen at the same time. You believe when you're regenerated. And when you believe and you're regenerated, that's when you receive the gift of the Spirit. So if you have professed Christ, when did you get the Spirit? When you believed, when you were born again. Now, does the Spirit then leave you and then come back? We would not believe that. And so, in those passages, we see that Spirit baptism is explicitly stated as a one-time event at the moment of salvation. But Pentecostals actually claim biblical authority based upon uh, the separation of salvation and the gift of the Spirit as seen in Acts. 
In fact, you see that in the book of Acts. So does that mean that maybe Paul got it wrong in 1 Corinthians? I don't say that to be funny. I'm just saying that. Just, did, did, is, there a misunder- is there a contradiction between what Paul says and then the separation that we see in Acts? How do we explain that? The first thing is this, is there is no consistent order in the book of Acts. There's no consistent order in how it unfolds in the book of Acts. So if you were trying to base a pattern on the book of Acts, you would be really hard-pressed to find a a pattern where you say, it happens like this every single time. And so if we say that, we have to say then what's taking place in the book of Acts, in the very least, is unique to the rest of what we see in Scripture. That's the first thing that we have to see. And the other thing is that we have to recognize what Pentecost itself was. Pentecost itself was the start of a new era where the disciples of Christ experienced the fulfillment of Davidic promises. That's the importance where Christ says to begin in Jerusalem. And where do they receive it? In Jerusalem. It's the unfolding of the Davidic promises before their eyes. Also, there's a delay in receiving gifts. Oftentimes in the book of Acts, you'll see this where there, you, someone will be converted and then there's a delay. Why is that delay? It will, it's usually because of the, until the apostles laid hands upon them. And what was special about that? It was to demonstrate the reality of Gentile conversion. What were the apostles like towards Gentiles in the earlier stages of Acts? Did they like the Gentiles? Did they want to go share the faith with the Gentiles? No. When Cornelius is converted and Peter goes to his house, he says, I, I, I couldn't go into your house except for God told me to not declare anything clean or unclean, not to declare anything. He said, I couldn't go in your house because you would have been unclean. Thank you for your patience. It's important to see the overarching view of Acts, which sees salvation taking place in new areas and the need of apostolic confirmation, not only for themselves, but for all those there with them. Also, the other thing is, is tongues and gifts do not always follow conversion in the book of Acts. When you see conversion, you don't always see supernatural things taking place. So again, if you were looking for a pattern, and you are going to say this is the pattern that we see, then then you can't use the book of Acts. And so could the book of Acts be used to make that justification of a separation of the spirit baptism that's separate from new birth? Well, I, I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because there's never a consistent pattern that you do see. You see different things happening. So every time you see something different, you would have to then set, because of what we witnessed in Acts, this must be the pattern. Oh, wait, nope. We we witnessed something different. This must be the pattern. There is no consistent pattern. And that's the other thing is is this. and, And we have to recognize this when we're reading the Scripture. The book of Acts is often descriptive. It does not mean it's prescriptive. Let me give you a prime example, and I love this example. How do we make decisions? Now, decisions are made throughout the book of Acts. 
So let's just take this rule. If we see it in the book of Acts and that becomes our prescription of how we're supposed to do something, answer me this. How do they make decisions in the book of Acts? Well, in one place, in Acts chapter 1, verse 26, it says, And they cast lots for them, and they, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So just pause for a second. Let's say that you, this church is seeking a pastor, and you have five men that you've called to be the pastor, and uh, you, you've said, okay, all of these guys meet the qualifications. How we're going to determine the pastor now, because it's in the book of Acts, is we're going to have them draw sticks. Would you make that argument? No, because you would say, no, that's descriptive of something that took place uniquely with the apostles in an apostolic era. Actually, what we see in for decision-making is in Acts chapter 6. And now let's, let's see if we can do some good principles of biblical study and say, huh, maybe that would be a better way of doing it. It says in verse 1, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenist arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Notice how they made a decision in the church. They did it together with the twelve and the people of the church to make this decision. Now, if I said you have five men that meet the qualifications of a pastor, but we need to choose one of them, do we see an example of, that we, of one we could follow? And actually look to other places of Scripture and say, yeah, that would actually be normative. It's a description of something that later might be prescribed, you could say. So when we're looking at, do or we're looking at doctrine in the book of Acts, we have to recognize that which is descriptive and unique to the first century, and that which would be prescriptive. And it's easy to figure out. You just look at where Scripture would, would, would show us this somewhere else. So again, just, to, just to, to make this belabor this point, is that when we're looking at the book of Acts to claim a doctrine that other places in Scripture contradict, the other places of Scripture outweigh the evidence in the book of Acts. It has to. Because it was a description. It was a narrative of what was taking place. And so thus, thus, this idea of a spirit baptism, I think the Pentecostal doctrine misunderstands the nature of it as it's explicitly taught in Scripture and by what can be gained through inference. Doctrines gained by inference where other doctrine contradicts it, you have to take the doctrine it is not by inference, but is explicit. That simple rule would get rid of a lot of headaches in the church today.
The second London Confession of Faith provides this guidance for biblical exposition. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which is not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. So you can take obscure doctrines or you could take obscure things that are, that are described by inference, and if you compare it to where it's explicitly stated, that which is explicit overrides that which is derived from inference. This does bring us to a question, though, about spirit baptism. What's the difference between filling and baptism? Are we not called to be filled and have the filling of the Holy Spirit? Paul says this in Ephesians 5.18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That's actually something Paul says that we're supposed to do, to be filled with the Spirit. And what's interesting is that as he says this, he's comparing it to that of drunkenness. And so we have to see a correlation here between these two. What does it mean? It's by way of an analogy that Paul teaches that being filled with the Spirit is to then actually be what? Influenced by the Spirit. That's, that's his point. Be influenced by the Spirit. Filled is a present, passive, indicative. Now, what's, what's a passive mean? It's being done to me. Which means being filled by the Spirit is passive and thus subject to the Spirit's actual own work and action. So baptism happens once at salvation but filling is an ongoing work of the Spirit of producing fruit in the Christian life. Every Sunday morning, I get here before anyone's here, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will fill me as I preach. And I, I, I think that every, every pastor probably prays that, that they would be filled with the Spirit. And your prayer ought to be that you would be filled with the Spirit. That the Spirit would be working fruit and producing fruit in your life. That the Spirit would have that control over you, much akin to that control in the contrast that Paul uses of wine and being drunken by it. Now, back to Charles Parham. And Agnes, you remember Agnes. Agnes, when she received this second blessing, it manifested in tongues. And Agnes believed she was speaking a foreign language. So important. Because remember, we're talking about the roots of an entire group of people that would that, and, and, that do claim Christ and Many are Christians. Agnes believed she was speaking a known language. How did Agnes then understand the gift of tongues that we see in the book of Acts? And the gift of tongues in the book of 1 Corinthians? Did she understand it 
as an ecstatic language that's under, understandable to no one? No, she actually understood it as a known language. She believed she was speaking in a foreign language. Parham was quoted in a local newspaper saying, there is no doubt that at this time they will have conferred on them the gift of tongues. If they are worthy and seek it in faith, believing they will thus be able to talk to the people whom they choose to work among in their own language. Charles Parham's own words in a newspaper in the 1900s. Charles Parham, Agnes, both believed that when they received the gift of tongues, they were speaking a known language. That's so important for us to grasp this. The key point is that they believed that now they have been given this gift, that if they were to be dropped in, say, China, they would be able to speak Chinese without ever having learned it. And I believe that's what the gift of tongues is. I believe they had the right interpretation of that. But what happened when they were sent to Japan, China, and India? The locals couldn't understand a word they were saying, though they were exercising the gift they said they had. So when they came back to the States, they changed their theology. Their theology then became that it was an unknown language to anyone. That's the historical reality of the birth of Pentecostalism. It was based on a Wesleyan doctrine of a second uh, blessing of spirit baptism. And what started off as them believing they had the gift, they found out, wait, this isn't like what we thought it was, so they changed their theology. That's the birth of it. That's the, the, the ground it's on. Now, it's, it's noteworthy that they both believe this, but the biblical description of what happens historically with the gift of tongues is Acts chapter 2. In verse 4, we see, And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And then they could hear. And so I, I, I covered some of this last week, but I, I just want to cover these points one more time. The gift is in regards to speaking, not in hearing. In verse 6, in verse 8 and 11, you see the, the mention of it. You see two words of tongue or language. One is dialectos, which dialect, so known language, and glossalia, which is a tongue or a language. The gift was understood by those that were listening, and they recognized something supernatural was taking place. Why? Because they were all Galileans. And so we see that the miracle was not in hearing, but was actually in the speaking. Otherwise, we'd have to assume everyone in the crowd gathered the same gift. Now, one thing is about this is in Old Testament, in the Old Testament times, we see this I'm quoting from a, a commentary in Old Testament times, the regular consequence of a person's possession of the, by the Spirit of God was prophecy. And this was the specific outcome of the Spirit's advent on this occasion too. In other words, what they were speaking forth in their tongues of known languages was the very Word of God. 
Why? Well, because they were sharing the gospel when Christ had commanded them to go into all nations. All nations had gathered there before them. And so what's coming to them is the word of God. This is one other thing that we have to see the connection in the scriptures is between tongues and prophecy is that they're actually working together. We can't see them as as always necessarily distinct, but when they were speaking in tongues, it was prophetic, at least here in Acts chapter 2. The other thing is, is there's nothing chaotic taking place. Nothing chaotic is taking place. The people are, are, are bewildered by it. They can't figure it out. But nothing chaotic is taking place. And the other point, and, and we made this last week, but I, I want to repeat it, the division of nations and tongues is reversed at the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened at the Tower of Babel. Babel separated the nations by language prior to God calling Abraham and the emergence of a chosen nation. The chosen nation of Abraham's descendants provided the line through which the promised seed of the woman would be born. The son of David, the true king, inaugurates his kingdom by sending the Spirit to empower the apostles to reach all nations. Thus is a reversal of Babel. And that's how we should understand what takes place in this phenomenon of Acts chapter 2. So Osman and Parham were correct in their original interpretation of the gift of tongues. However, they embraced a foreign interpretation when tongues became the gift of an unknown language. What's the lesson for us? What's the lesson for us in this? Perhaps it was pride on their part. Perhaps it was embarrassment. But what were the underlying sins that prompted Osman and Parham to develop a new understanding of tongues? Now, it's easy to look back on them and say, boy, we can see how they really messed up. Let me ask you, how do we handle the Word of God? How do we understand truth? How do we deal with the Word of God where it's very clear in certain areas, but we we dig in on something? Are there consequences to that? Would you say that there are some serious consequences to something that took place in Topeka, Kansas? Amongst a small group of people? Are are the, the consequences that took place as a result of that devastating throughout the world and the missionary endeavors taking place throughout the whole world right now? It took place amongst a small, isolated group that applied John Wesley's theology to something else. Does doctrine matter? Absolutely, it matters. Let this be a lesson for us of how we handle the Word of God, that we would handle it with humility and open to it constantly being able to correct us where we find we're wrong. Let us not have pride and be okay to be embarrassed to say, ah, I didn't have that right. Actually, that's not embarrassing, is it? It's actually just showing that we're, we, we haven't arrived and we're humble to the leading of the Spirit and showing us truth from His Word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the truth of Your Word
We thank you that your word is sufficient and perfect in all of its ways. Father, we pray that we would be humble when we look at your word and look to your word. We pray that your spirit would be working in our hearts to guide us and to direct us into truth. May we be known as a people of truth that love truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.